A reading from God's word, beginning in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In 1945, World War II was ending, and so on VE Day, May 8th, 1945, Germany surrenders, so there's victory in Europe. In July, Japan and the Allied forces were still at war, so the war was continuing even though uh, Germany had surrendered. So the Potsdam Declaration was signed by Great Britain, the U.S., and China, and there's some pretty sobering words in the Potsdam Declaration. This was, a, uh, this was a document that would be presented to Japan. And it threatened the inevitable and complete destruction of the Japanese armed forces. And just as the inevitably, and just as in- inevitably, the utter devastation of the Japanese homeland if Japan did not proclaim now the unconditional surrender of all the Japanese armed forces. So that was in July. Well, Japan did not accept it, and so the atomic bombs were dropped on August 6th and August 9th in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, killing somewhere around 200,000 people, so massive devastation. Now, that devastation only makes sense if you, if you compare it to what would have happened had those bombs not been dropped and the millions of people that would have died had the war continued. So the second bomb there was dropped on August 9th, and on August 14th, Americans started to hear rumors that maybe Japan had surrendered, so just a few days later. And so in Times Square, two million people had gathered. The New York Times said that outside their, their office building, they would, give, they would give these short little updates as things developed. So this hundreds of thousands of people started to gather in Times Square. And then at 7.03 p.m., there was this message, official, Truman announces Japanese surrender. And Truman said... Let the people do anything within reason and keep property damage down. <laughs> so you have all those pictures of soldiers kissing their girls and such things. They would, J- 
Japan would go on to, to sign the official terms of surrender uh, September 2nd, 1945. But that was the treaty that ended the war. World War II was over. The hundreds of thousands of soldiers and civilians that died, and now it was over because of the unconditional surrender of uh, the Axis powers. And of course, joy explodes throughout the world. Prayers, tears, uh, certainly mourning for those who had, who had been lost, but there was much joy. The war's over. That utter devastation would not continue. And that's what we have in our text this morning. So the flood of Noah has, has just happened. So Brad taught in the flood of Noah last week, utter devastation. Thousands and hundreds of thousands of people are killed, creatures a massive wave of devastation goes throughout the earth. And then we get to Noah and his family who are preserved through the flood. That's where our passage picks up, after the flood. And joy breaks out. Worship breaks out. It's, only, uh, it's a small group of people, so there's, there's mourning mixed with that joy. They would have been aware of the, of the loss, even as they're aware of the joy of being delivered. And yet that's what we're experiencing here, the joy of deliverance, the joy of, of this worship moment. And in our series, Right from the Start, our book of Genesis series is called Right from the Start. So as Brad reminded us last week, there are all these foundation stones that are being given to us. And on these foundation stones that are given to us in the book of Genesis, the rest of the Bible's story and message is built. So all those books in your table of contents, you have the Genesis there at the beginning, all those other built books are really built atop what we have in the book of Genesis. Things like God and God alone is the creator. Man and man alone is made in God's image. Man is made male and female and is to embrace marriage as a God-given ordinance and to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, foundation stones like... Sin brings devastating consequences. Inevitable and utter destruction is a good description of what sin brings. No no earthly army can bring the inevitable and utter destruction like God can. And he brings that because of sin. So the death in the garden, the flood of Noah, the wave wave upon wave of the consequences of sin comes to us. But then you also you see this promise that goes forth, this promise of a champion, of a hero, of a deliverer, of one born to a woman who would crush the serpent and bring salvation. At this point, in the, early in the book of Genesis, that salvation is, is in shadow and type. We don't see it clearly. It takes the rest of the Bible before we learn that that champion is the one who is born to Mary, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning we look back again at Noah, and we'll finish the Noah narrative before we turn to uh, Abraham, or Tower of Babel next week. And then in two weeks we'll actually uh, preach on Sanctity of Life Sunday, and then we'll return back to Genesis after that. So three points this morning, God promises, God commands, and then God covenants. God promises, God commands, and then God covenants. And we're just going to work through 8.20 through 9.17. That's our, that's our text this morning. Chapter 8, verse 20 through chapter 9, verse 17. God promises, God commands, God covenants. And we'll see that the response that we are to live out today and all days and for the rest of eternity, the response we're supposed to live out is worship. Worship. And this passage gives us a wonderful categories for what our worship is to look like. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the sobering message of 
sin's punishment would weigh upon us this morning. And yet at the same time, we pray that the, the glory of deliverance in Jesus Christ would explode from our hearts. Lord, let us be joyful even as we're sobered. Let the, let the reality of sin sober us, but, but Lord, let us be those who are joyful worshipers as we bask in the glory of the deliverance we have in Jesus Christ. And this morning, Lord, we lift up the Rickard family and uh, pray for them as uh, some symptoms have returned for Meredith. And so we pray, Lord, that you would be with them as they figure out what's going on and pray that this week they would get good news. It would be a confirmation of what they have uh, been assuming so, thus far. We pray that there would be good news that they get. Pray for healing for Meredith, blessing on their family. And we pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point one, God promises. God promises. Now, the flood of Noah, we won't recap it, but it begins in chapter 6, all of chapter 7, almost all of chapter 8. That covers the flood of Noah. This about a year-long flood that had occurred. And then chapter 8, verse 20, where Becca started reading, starts, then, then Noah built an altar to the Lord. So then, meaning after he left the ark. Then he built an altar. It's good to remember the context. So they'd been on this ark for over a year. So they get on the ark, the rain's beginning. And then as the days and weeks accumulate, we don't know exactly when the creatures, the people that they know, started to die. But they started to die. And they're still on the ark for month after month after month. And then... The waters start to recede, but the, but the ground is not dry yet. It's not safe to leave the ark. And then finally, after over a year, the ground dries out, and the Lord says, okay, now it's time. Now you can leave the ark. And so that's chapter 8, verse 13. So God says, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. And that's a good day. That's a good day. They, they have been delivered. And maybe for several months in there, they weren't sure exactly how this story was going to end. They had some faith in God, for sure, because there they were on the ark. But they would not have known how exactly that story was going to end. Very sober, long uh, uh, season as they're just waiting for the end of this to occur. And then they leave the ark. And that, like, as I said, that's, that's a good day. And as the story is told, you get all these references to things like the waters receding, the waters doing this or that, and the wind doing this or that. Phrases like birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And we're thinking, wow, that sounds a lot like Genesis 1, the creation account. And you see that, that, that Noah, uh, as Brad reminded us last week, Noah is like a new Adam, a second Adam. And so there's this kind of recreation that happens, a fresh start that happens with Noah. And in fact, Noah, like Adam, is told, be fruitful and multiply. In fact, three times he's going to be told, be fruitful and multiply. That same command and blessing that's given to Adam is given to Noah. So all of that happens, and then Noah reacts. He responds. He responds very appropriately. He responds with worship. So in 820, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal. Remember, he was told to bring clean and unclean animals on the ark, seven, seven pairs of clean animals. Uh, take some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and, and, and they offered burnt offerings on the altar. 
And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, even God likes barbecue, that's what we know. So when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. An offering is made, and that offering is pleasing to the Lord. It's acceptable to the Lord. And so in some ways, Noah is is combining the offerings that we read about earlier with Cain and Abel. So Cain is actually the one who offered the offering of animals. Abel offered the first fruits from his his harvest, from his fields. They were the the first and best. Cain offered animals, but but not the first and best. And so in some ways, Noah is offering a, a combination there. He's offering the best of what he has. And it's pleasing to the Lord. And at that, we don't want to think of um, uh, Noah meriting as if he earned this blessing from God, but this is just God's, God's grace, his superabundant grace. So the offering is, is offered, and then, and then God makes that great declaration, I will never again curse the ground and bring a flood like I have brought. So this is not, a, this is not God saying, I will never punish sin. That's not, that's not, it's a very specific promise God is making. I will never again wipe out humanity in that kind of flood-like way as I did with the flood. And that promise is going to come back in our text as we we work here. But right now we just want to see this this picture of worship. Worship is giving your offerings. Worship is giving your sacrifices. Now we don't don't offer animals. The the once and for all blood sacrifice has been given, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We, We offer no more blood sacrifices. But we do offer things like our finances. And in fact, this, the language used to describe our financial giving is actually very similar to the, the language that's used to describe this, this offering that, that Noah makes. And so in the book of Philippians chapter 4, Paul's thanking the Philippians for their giving. And he says, it was kind of you to share my trouble, you know, his ministry. It's, it was kind of you to partner with me in this, in this ministry endeavor that we, that we are we are traveling on together. It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And here's, here's, what, here's those phrases I'm talking about. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Money doesn't literally have a a, a scent to it. Paul's making a spiritual point that when we give in faith, when we give in joy for the Lord's purposes, it is like that offering that Noah made. It is pleasing to the Lord. It is a fragrant offering. It's a sacrifice acceptable, not like Cain's sacrifice, but like Abel's sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And it's not the amount. You know, if you give $15 out of your babysitting money, that's great. If you give it in joy, in worship, or if it's $150,000 of your inheritance, 
That's great if it's given in faith, in joy to the Lord for his purposes. It's giving with an awareness that I've been delivered. There I was, potentially destroyed by the floodwaters of God, and he delivered me. And out of that joy and sacrifice, I give. I give to him. So worship, we, give, we worship with our offerings, number one. So point two, God commands, verses one through seven of the next chapter. And this is where we get into some of the covenant stipulations or covenant commandments because this whole passage is describing the covenant with Noah. So verses nine, uh, chapter nine, verses one through seven. So God has, has already promised something wonderful that human history ha- will have a chance, basically. That's what, that's, we'll, we'll see the detail there as we, as we go, but human history is gonna continue. But he's going to bless Noah even further. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood... I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So the, the two basic commands here, the first one has to do with Populating the earth, be fruitful and multiply. A threefold repetition. We, so we saw that, that in chapter 8 and then in verse 1 and verse 7. Three times God says, be fruitful and multiply. A very literal echo of Genesis chapter 1, where God said to Adam and Eve, and God blessed them, just like God blessed Noah and his sons. God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So that command is given. And then food is provided for. So eating animals now, not just plants. Uh, if, if there was no uh, explicit uh, uh, opportunity before to eat meat, now there is. But... With the provision of meat, there's also this condition that brings into, brings into play the sacredness of blood. Blood is a, there's meat that we enjoy, we can feast on, but blood actually we need to see as something distinct. There's a sacredness to blood. Life is in the blood, is, is what he says here. And as the, the law of Moses uh, is revealed in, ex, in the book of Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we see that blood is what is offered in, in very many sacrifices. Blood will be poured out at times, drained from sacrifices, and then offered in others. Blood is actually what is required for forgiveness of sin. Now, the blood, of, the blood in the sacrifices of the Old Testament is just a picture. It can't actually do anything to our sin. Faith in God can do something, but even there, only because it's anticipating the ultimate sacrifice, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So he offered his own blood, shed his own blood so that our sins can be cleansed. And so as we today celebrate the Lord's Supper, so very appropriately uh, on a sermon like this, we lifted up that cup 
which is, the, as Jesus said, this new covenant in my blood. So as that covenant blood is, is shed, our sins are cleansed. So the Apostle Peter calls Christ's blood the precious blood of Christ and, that, and says that that blood has ransomed us from the feudal ways that we inherited from our forefathers. So the next command is also connected to this idea of blood, except now it's a very different category. Now it's this idea of creating a just society. Now, not, this is, there's not a lot of detail, obviously, given in this. Just a basic command that when there is murder, there needs to be justice, retributive justice. Murder needs to be avenged. So earlier when Cain and, and then Lamech, his, his relative, when they, when they killed, when they murdered sinfully, they were avenged by God. And God is saying that now it's, it's up to us as people, families and societies, then to be part of this, this act of justice. We, the sword of justice is going is to be in our hands and not just in God's hands. So God says in verse 6, by man, so whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why capital punishment? Why such a severe punishment? There's no more severe punishment than actually taking the life of someone else for a sin, for, an, for a crime they've committed. And the reason is because of what people are. We're not just like animals. We're distinct. We're unique, separate from all the rest of creation. Verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Because of what we are, there is a specific, severe kind of justice required for taking a life, sinfully taking the life of a person. So this reminds us that our worship involves obedience. And in fact, it's an obedience that's distinctly and profoundly, abundantly pro-life. Pro-life and in, in all kinds of positive and negative ways. Negative in the sense that we're against certain things and we're for other things. Pro-life, but that pro part is important. We are pro-life. And that's actually part of the obedience that we offer in our worship. That be fruitful and multiply, there's a, there's a literal fulfillment of that that we offer as Christians. We have babies because we're Christians. We celebrate babies because we're Christians. We get married and then we have babies, of course, right? Uh, as Christians. So we glory in that aspect of procreation. We build families. Now, we know that that's a miracle every single time. We don't take it for granted. We know that that's, that's all dependent on the Lord's providence in our lives. Sometimes physical children aren't able to be born to us. We're aware of that. Sometimes marriage doesn't, isn't, isn't what God has for us providentially. We understand that. But still, our convictionally, theologically, we are for children. We are pro-children. We are excited about all the children that God gives to us. There's a, um, there's a, there's a physical side, and then there's also just a, um, a life-giving side to that. We want to bring life as the people of God. We celebrate that life is from Christ. We have that life because of Christ, and we want to sh- proclaim and share that life with others. So there's, there's that side of life-giving as well. And then as the passage leads us to, we are also those who protect life. So whether it's life of the unborn or 
just laws in a society. We protect life. We want to be those who seek proper retributive justice in a society. That's part of being pro-life. We are for this. We are against that as Christians. And that's part of the obedience that we bring. And this passage announces this category, but, that, but these categories will, be, will ripple throughout the entire Bible. Justice, protecting, protecting the innocent. That these are all just truths that pervade our scriptures. This isn't the only place where that's found. All throughout the Psalms, the prophets, Jesus is teaching the apostles. We are distinctly pro-life. So in two weeks, we're actually going to pick up that theme and trace it out even more. Uh, but we'll go on this morning. So that's the second point. God commands, and our response here is worship with our obedience. And point three, God covenants. Now we get into the formal covenant with Noah. This is verses 8 through 13. And we'll, we'll hear this, hopefully. Sometimes it's hard on a first reading, if you haven't read it in a little while, but there's a ton of repetition. And that repetition, as in all, all passages of the Bible, tells us what's the big deal here. So just as a tip, seven times the word covenant is going to be found in these verses. Well, that's a tip, that's a tip off. Three times that this phrase, I will establish, is used. I will establish my covenant. So let me read the passage. This is chapter 9, verses 8 through 17. So then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, or my rainbow. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the, co- the everlasting covenant between God and every, every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So this is one of the great divine covenants of our Bible. These half dozen moments when God makes a solemn oath and like all of his covenants, he makes promises. He makes promises in these moments of covenant. And there's some way in which he redefines or defines afresh what it means that he is our God and we are his people. Somehow he's defining for us what this relationship is to look like. Now there's a, there's a subtle distinction here between the covenant with Noah and then the covenant with Abraham we're going to read about in a few weeks. Here God uses the language of establish. God's establishing a covenant, whereas with Abraham he uses the language of cut. I'm cutting a covenant. So cutting a covenant, we'll see that it's almost literally true because what God is going to do is he's going to to ask Abraham to to get a set of animals. Those animals are going to be cut in half. They're going to be, that two halves are going to be laid opposite each other. And this fire representing God himself is going to go between the halves of the animals. That's a cutting of a covenant. Now that what God is saying with that kind of action of cutting a covenant is may I receive what happened to these animals if I ever break this covenant. Now, it's God doing it, so we know that 
he will never break this covenant. And yet that's God cutting a covenant. But with Noah, it's the language of establish. I'm establishing a covenant, which tends to, tends to uh, imply that it's continuing a covenant that had already been made. So in some way, what's happening here is a continuation of the covenant with, with Adam, the covenant of creation. It's continuing at this point, being renewed. It's not a brand new covenant, but it's being renewed. There is a newness to it, but it's also a renewal of the covenant that was there before. Now, if we look at these I will establish phrases, it gives us a lot of important truths about this covenant. So first of all, with whom is the covenant made? And this is interesting. With whom is the covenant made? Verses 9 and 10. God says, behold, I establish my covenant with you, Noah. That's not surprising. With you and your offspring after you, that's not very surprising. But it just keeps going. With you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. It's a covenant with all creatures, not just people, not just with Noah, but all creatures. So it's, and the, it's that promise. It's that promise not to destroy all those creatures with a flood. But the with whom is, the, is a key part there. With whom does it, who are the parties of this covenant? So the parties of the covenant formally are God and then Noah and then offspring, all creatures. So all people, all creatures. That's, who's, that's who is uh, the party of the covenant. Well, what is covenanted? It's in verse 11. So I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. It's a very specific promise that God makes. Again, he's not promising not to punish sin. God will punish sin. He has and he will. But it is, it is a promise that never again will he wipe out in this kind of premature way all creatures. So the, the plan of redemption will unfold. Christ will come back and then there will be a final judgment. That's coming. And in some ways the Noah is the great symbol, the great sign that, yes, it's really coming. It really is. This is just a small foretaste of that eventual judgment. But what is covenanted is that human history will endure until we get to that point. And so that at the end of chapter 8 where we read that um, while the earth remains seed time and harvest, so there will be a, an ongoing food supply, we won't be wiped out by starvation, cold and heat, summer, winter, day and night shall not cease. So we don't, ultimately, we don't need to worry about AI drones you know, wiping out humanity. That's not, how we, that's not how the story ends. Global warming is not how the story ends. You know, massive asteroid blasting into earth, that's not how the story ends. Another flood is not how the story ends. Human history as it is now ends when Christ returns. The plan of salvation ends or continues with that next great event with the return of Christ. So that's what's being promised, covenanted here. Well, what is the sign? You know, the, the, one, of the, one of the most distinctive elements of Noah's covenant is the sign given, this bow in the clouds, this rainbow in the clouds. And a lot, a lot is made of the fact that rainbow and bow, like an archer's bow, are the same word in Hebrew. There's not two words. There's only one word for those two, those two uh, semicircles. And so what you have in the clouds is this kind of archer's bow aimed upward. You know, if the flood is that archer's bow aimed downward, this is God saying, no more. The archer's, 
the archer's bow is aimed upward for a time. And one of the, one of the beauties and the power of this sign is it's, enti- it's impossible, as we know, it's impossible for you and I to carve out this sign, to make this sign. Impossible. All the rest of the signs that we have in our, in our Bible are possible for us as people, as his creatures. So this morning, I don't know which usher it was, but an usher came in this morning and he did all the, all the work required to put out the cup and the juice, or the, the cup and the bread for all of us. So that he made those signs. And we, didn't, we actually didn't think of that as a, as a miraculous act. We, we thought it as a very typical act for the Lord's Supper. Baptism, a very human act. We put someone in the water, we bring them up. But a rainbow in the cloud, we marvel at those. We marvel when we can see a massive, full rainbow in the clouds because of how miraculous it is. We can't do that. But that's the sign of the covenant. And God says that when, when he sees the sign, he will remember his own promise not to destroy humanity. And it's, you know, now that, now that it's been several thousand years since, since this original moment, it's, it's, it's easy to forget. But, but you have to think of, you know, the first rainstorm after the flood would be a very scary moment, wouldn't it? You know, they would have known what happened the last time there was a massive rainstorm. And so in some ways, this is God saying, when that happens, I'll add, I'll add a rainbow there so you remember it's not going ha- to be like that again. Now, we know that we don't see rainbows in every single rainstorm. but Now, God remembering something <clears throat> is this, uh, the technical word is an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism. Where God is presented as if he's just like you and me. We actually forget things, a lot of things, continually, often. God actually doesn't forget anything. Now, God, God saying that I'm going to put that there to remember is really a teaching device. It's, it's him saying, if I was like you, this is what I would need. I would need something like a rainbow in the clouds. But at the end of the day, he is not like us. He does not forget his promises. He does not forget all of the commitments he's made to all the people through all history. He doesn't forget a single one of them. He keeps his promises. And part of the reason he keeps his promises is because he remembers his promises. He's not like us. We, some of the promises we don't keep are just because we forgot. You know, you, you promised your kid you would take him to get ice cream on Saturday, and you just, you just forgot. You didn't choose not to do it. You just forgot about it, and it didn't happen. We are covenant breakers. We are, co- we are promise breakers so often. God isn't like that. But at times like this, he presents himself as if he is like us. Really just to understate uh, how much he will not forget this covenant and this promise. Now this covenant, this covenant with Noah, this is an everlasting covenant. It's still in effect. You know, why is 2023 here? Why was humanity not wiped out in 2022 or 2021 or 2020 with the pandemic? Why are we still here? Because of this covenant. Remember, when you, get to, when you go from Adam to Noah, that's, it's, uh, uh, what did Brad tell us? What is that, 1,500, 2,000 years, something like that? Whatever the number of generations are, lots of, lots of people, but it's not that long in history. And already, humanity is so evil that it needed a flood to be, to be punished. And we haven't gotten better, in case you haven't noticed. And yet, 
God has not wiped us out because of the promise he made to Noah. We're still here. Now, that isn't to say that we will be here forever, and this, this realm of human history will, will endure forever. Uh, the New Testament is, is pretty clear, actually, that we are living now in the last days. We're in the last days, and we're anticipating the last day. So in Acts 2, Peter makes that very clear. We're in the last days now, and we're anticipating the, the last day, or the day of the Lord. And we don't know how many days until the last day. Could be tomorrow, it could be today, it could be in, in the next five minutes. We have no idea when that's going to happen. Nothing more needs to happen in terms of salvation history uh, for Christ to return. But all that is to say, even though it's been a while, and it may continue for a while, this, this realm of human history, it won't continue forever. So there's time to repent, there's time to respond to the Lord, there's time to turn to Christ now, but that isn't to say that there will be an infinite amount of time. There will be an end point when these last days become the last day. And at that point, we're judged. At that point, we're judged according to our works. And if we're in Christ, then we have his works attributed to us. And if we're not in Christ, then all we can present to the Lord is our own works. And they will not be enough. They will not be enough. We will be judged and punished forever. That's why it's been said. I can't verify who actually said it. But we want to live like Christ died yesterday like he rose today, and like he's returning tomorrow. We want to live like he died yesterday, like he rose today, and like he's returning tomorrow. Some have said it's Martin Luther, but I can't, I can't track it. But that's the idea with that. The crucifixion of Jesus is so important to me. It's as if it happened yesterday. The resurrection of Christ, it's the day in which I live. That resurrection day and tomorrow could be the day that he returns. And so I want to live like he's returning tomorrow. So as you think about this covenant with Noah, a couple things. We want to connect it back to the earlier promise we've heard from Genesis 3.15, where God, is, God says, I will put enmity between you, and he's talking to the serpent at this point, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, there's an offspring of that woman coming, that offspring of that woman, Eve, coming, who's, who's going to crush the serpent. The serpent is Satan. And that promise that God is going to bring salvation through that uh, offspring of the woman, and the, the, the salvation that we experience when we trust in that promise, that's what we call the covenant of grace a few weeks ago. That's the covenant of grace. God promises grace to those who trust in him. And as divine covenants happen in the Bible, these, there's significant moments along the way, but what we, what we uh, realize is, is that they're all really building on that single covenant of grace. And so Noah connects back to that Genesis 3.15 promise. Now, as of chapter Nine, in, in our Bibles, Christ hasn't come yet. There's a lot of chapters that have to happen before Jesus is born to Mary. That's the offspring of the woman. Mary the woman uh, will have the offspring Jesus, and that's our salvation. That's the deliverer. That's the serpent crusher. But history has to continue until that serpent crusher comes. And so that's where the, the covenant with Noah is. The, it's a covenant of pres preservation or protection that history will endure until that Genesis 3.15 promise is accomplished.
until all of God's plans are fulfilled. So the covenant with Noah is kind of a, this protective shield around the covenant promise in Genesis 3.15. It's a protective shield that it will happen. It's going to take a while, but it will happen. And so this is a reminder that we worship with our faith. So we worship with our offerings as Noah did. We worship with our obedience as God commands. And then we worship with our faith, our faith in God's goodness in Christ as we trust in him. So with this covenant of Noah, as we, as we wrap up here, this covenant with Noah, we get a necessary solution. We need history to continue until Christ comes, until all the elect are saved. So it's a necessary step in that unfolding promise. But it's also really clear that, that this covenant by itself is not enough. Because what's going to happen in, as chapter 9 continues is Noah is going to, He's going to get drunk and be ashamed, and his, his sons are going to, one of his sons is going to be cursed because of how he treats his father, and then two of the sons are going to be blessed because of how they treat their father. And it's very clear that if, you, if your hope was in Noah, your hope is in the wrong man. He, he, he was used by the Lord to bring deliverance through the flood, but he is not the ultimate hope. He's not the serpent crusher. So it's a necessary step in God's unfolding plan, but it's not a sufficient set. Steps. Something more is needed. You know, with Noah, you get this fresh start, and that's powerful, and that's, that's wonderful. God gives a fresh start to humanity. But we don't just need a fresh start. We need a new heart. That's what is needed for you and I to walk in obedience. Ezekiel 36, centuries after, after these events, um, several thousand years after these events, Ezekiel 36 is going to make this, this promise. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what we need. I mean, a clean slate doesn't help me. I need a new heart. And that's what we have in Christ. And so when Jesus has that famous conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then a few minutes later, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's referring back to that Ezekiel promise. You need a new heart to see the kingdom of God. You need regeneration. You need the Spirit of God to give you a new heart. That's what we need. Now, that happens through Christ. That happens through his spirit. But that's what we need. Not just a fresh start. We need new hearts. Now, that's something the spirit must do. We can't make that happen. The spirit must do that. But we can pray for it. If you, if you came in this morning and you know, I'm not a Christian. My heart is as dead today as it's ever been. And you're, and you're personally aware of that. Then what you can do is pray, Lord, give me that heart. Give me that new spirit. Give me that heart of flesh. Take out my heart of stone. Give me a new heart. Let's pray for that now. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Noah, this reminder of the utter destruction that sin can bring and yet deliverance in the Redeemer that you provide. 
And we know that Noah is not our provider. He's not our hope. We know that Christ is our hope. As we'll sing in a moment, he's our hope in life and death. And for all those, Lord, who came in this morning separated from you, I pray that you, Lord, would give them new hearts, give them faith, give them a, a cry that they never stop lifting up to you until you change their lives. Young or old, bring that new heart, Lord. We thank you for your provision, your grace, which is the super abundant solution we need. You are no Scrooge, you are no, uh, you don't give us meager blessings, Lord. You give us abundant blessings. And we praise and thank you for that. And we do pray that we would be those who worship you with our, with our offerings, with our obedience, with our faith, Lord. Let us be those who fight for justice within our society as an act of worship and obedience. Let us be those who are life givers to all those around us as we receive the life you give to us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.